Welcome to How to Decorate from Ballard Designs, a podcast all about the trials and triumphs of decorating and redecorating your home. Each week, we'll help you unleash your inner decorator. I'm Caroline, and I'm on the marketing team. And I'm Taryn, and I'm a product designer. And I'm Liz. I head up the Ballard creative team. We're your host. Join the expert team at Ballard Designs for tips, tricks, and tales from interior designers, stylists, and other talents in the design world. Plus, we'll answer our listener question at the end of each show. So don't forget to send them to podcast at ballarddesigns.net. Yes, we love answering them. Now, on with the show. Our guest today is Hattie Sparks Collins, a New Orleans-based interior designer whose journey from boutique owner to art history student to now professional decorator is truly inspiring. Hattie's storied history has influenced her ability to create beautiful spaces for her clients that nurture connection and real-life authenticity, and her ability to find treasured antiques that are beautiful and reasonably priced will be the focus of today's podcast. Hattie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Mm, All the way from New Orleans. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, everybody loves New Orleans. I'm really excited to talk to you today. And you've had some really different paths into interior design. Maybe you can take us a little bit about your journey. Sure. So I moved to New Orleans 15 years ago to go to graduate school at Tulane. I had my undergrad in art history and business, and I came to Tulane to get a master's in art history. It was during the recession. I was. What was your plan with your original degree? Oh, I had no idea. (laughs) I think I just really loved art history. And I initially went into college or before college thinking I wanted to be a lawyer. And I took a trip to Europe right after I finished high school and visited all the big museums and just fell in love with art and just all of the kind of social context and political commentary that these big historic pieces had. So I went in as an art history major and I interned a lot throughout college at, I went to TCU um, in Fort Worth and I interned at, I think every major museum there, one museum, the Eamon Carter, I basically bullied them into giving me an internship. They didn't have a program (laughs) and I just wanted to work there so badly. So they made me sharpen pencils for like a week and finally (laughs) they realized I wasn't going, I wasn't going away. Um, But I interned at... Um, the three major museums there and then at the MFA in Houston. And I thought I wanted to go into the museum or the gallery world. And my advisor at TCU told me, well, you're not going to get a job in in that field without a master's degree. And it's the recessions. You probably just won't get a job anyway. (laughs) So you should probably just stay in school for two more years. Um, So I came to Tulane and that's kind of what I thought I would do. Um, I've, been working since I was 15 and I've had lots of different jobs and had worked retail here and there. Um, so when I finished, uh, graduate school is still the recession surprise (laughs) and I couldn't find a job in the art world in new Orleans and I wanted to stay here. Mm -hmm. So I took a retail job. Um, I was on the opening team for the anthropology that opened here and it's massive store. I think it was at the time, the third largest one in the country, And I was their operations manager and I handled special ordering for them. And that's where I really got the idea to open my first business here, which was a retail store, Um, was meeting all these artists and designers that they collaborated with um, locally, but never really took it beyond carrying their line in the New Orleans store. Mm -hmm. So I was meeting all these incredible artists and designers who were doing um, 
really making really incredible products, but they weren't sold in stores anywhere here. So, so that kind of that experience led me to opening my retail stores in New Orleans. That was a pretty interesting, very cool time in my life. So I'd made all these connections working for Anthro and I had the idea for a shop that was sort of like that, but on a smaller scale and more emphasis on home design, art, um, objects, gifts, and then some clothing as well. So, but the emphasis on local and Southern designers. And there wasn't really much of that here at the time. This was in 2010. So I opened a store close to Tulane uptown and we carried a really nice handful of lines that were made by locals and um, designers across the South. And we really had this niche in New Orleans for a while. And we were the only store to carry a lot of these products. And a lot of these, um, you know, creators, or I don't want to say creators, but all these craftsmen at the time were doing this part-time. So they had their full-time job and they were making all these really amazing products in their garage at night or, you know, in their office at night. And it was really neat to kind of become a springboard for these brands. And a lot of these brands now, those people do that full-time and they have storefronts of their own and they're carried in shops across the country. Um, so that was a really kind of formative experience for me um, on so many levels, running my own business, merchandising, hunting for interesting new products that not everybody else was carrying. And then I ended up opening a second location. How did you even find those artists? Well, I guess the the started Anthro helped you, but I'm sure you still had to hunt for talented creators. So where did you find them? I would, a lot of them would, (laughs) yeah, honestly, I would, um, a lot of them actually came to me. I think once the word got out, New Orleans is not a That's awesome. very big city. It is, but it's a very small city and word of mouth is huge here. And I think once word got out that I was carrying smaller designers, a lot of people would approach me, mm-hmm. but I would also go to arts markets on the weekends and get people's business cards, uh-huh. ask if they were interested in me selling their products. And then even Etsy, I would go on Etsy and browse and it was you know, a lot smaller Mm -hmm. in 2010, 2011. And I would just email people asking if they were interested in selling their things in a brick and mortar. A lot of people didn't have a wholesale structure at that point because they were just selling direct to consumer. So there were a couple of brands that I helped with structuring their wholesale plan. And it was really fun. And I really enjoyed that hunt and that search for what was new and different. That is so neat. And to help so many people to even, you know, to bring their feet, like you said, to start their own businesses, really. It was very cool. Yeah. That's really neat. So we opened after a couple years, we had the opportunity to be in a new development, um, a mixed use development closer to downtown. And so we opened a much bigger store in 2015. And I really expanded my product line. And that's where I really dove into home and decor because the store was so huge. I needed to fill it with something. So I started selling furniture, rugs, a lot more artwork, smaller decorative pieces. And I loved it so much. And I started at that time too, just consuming so much design media that I almost considered going back to school to get my degree in interior design. 
And I always thought in the back of my head, if I could go back and do this all over again, I would want to major in interior design because I just loved it so much. And I started then helping, you know, through the store, friends of mine would purchase pieces and I would help them style it in their homes. I would help them build out a room. I was always playing with things in my own home, switching things out. So it kind of started as this side little passion project in a way. And when it came time to end the retail chapter of my life, it felt like a very natural progression to go into interior decorating. And I started with five clients. This was 2019. I started with five clients, very small projects, one room. And then I got a very big project doing a whole home historic renovation. And I, that's what I started putting out on social media. And I think that, you know, the word got out again, it's word of mouth is so powerful here in New Orleans and word got out that I was doing that. And I started having people get in touch and asking for my help and kind of just took off. And I didn't really know what I was doing from a business (laughs) standpoint. And it just, it took off. And then, you know, COVID happened, which I think everybody knows that turned everything upside down in this industry. So (laughs) yeah. So I think that was, you know, maybe the quickest version or quickest yeah version of that journey that I could give to y'all, but it was you know, I can see the dots all connected now that I look back mm-hmm. and it's really interesting to look back and reflect on choices that I made to get here and just understand now in hindsight that it all was kind of leading me to where I am now. So magical. That's awesome. And I love that thread from like art history and understanding composition and and just the history of things into visual merchandising and and then interior decorating. You have a beautiful mix in your work, mixing of like colors and patterns and large strokes and wallpaper. And there's a real playfulness that I see in your work that I feel like is almost like an irreverence that comes from knowing the rules but not being formally trained with them. Mm-hmm. I think that's really great. Could you talk a little bit about your design philosophy? Sure. And, you know, thank you for saying that. So nice. And I I think my philosophy is that, you know, nothing should really ever be so like too precious. You know, your home is a space where you're meant to live and it should be somewhere that you love coming back to every day and it should reflect your personality and your preferences. And I think, you know, infusing color and pattern and texture into a home is such a nice way to make it feel like it's been there for forever. And it's not all going to be thrown off if one element of the room changes. You know, I like clients to be able to mix the furniture up if they want to, or swap a table out if they feel like it and not feel like, oh gosh, this is going to throw off like the whole design of the room. So I think my philosophy is I like to take a really joyful approach to design and I like to encourage people to choose colors and patterns that feel like them, not that feel like me. And I think one benefit of not being formally trained is that, like you said, I do I guess kind of bend the rules of design, which I don't know how many like true rules there are anymore, (laughs) except for somebody asked me that question. And I said, I think the only 
true rule, in my opinion, is hanging your drapery high enough <laughs> and not letting it all drag, <laughs> right. drag on the floor or hang off the floor. Yeah. Um, but I think it does allow me to kind of make some choices that are a bit more unexpected um, that might be a little bit outside of kind of that technically trained box. But I think it gives an element of, like you said, playfulness, a bit of surprise. Yeah, I think those those points where you mix things that you wouldn't traditionally see together are the most exciting parts of your work. That's really exciting. Well, thanks. And I like that kind of push and pull element too. Like I really like, you know, a more contemporary piece paired with a antique piece, that kind of tension that in design or a more masculine piece paired with a more feminine piece. I think that contrast is something that I've always loved even going back to my retail days, I loved pairing, you know, a more masculine, you know, button down shirt with a really feminine skirt. And I think, you know, a lot of us too, that grew up in like the Jenna Lyons of J crew days, like remember when she would wear a jean jacket or a leather jacket with a big ball skirt, like that mm-hmm. kind of aesthetic has kind of carried with me into my career now. And I like to look for unexpected combinations because it's so interesting. And I think it's, you know, really delightful when you come home and you have this really cool, interesting moment that's a bit unexpected. Do you think that's part of designing in New Orleans, partially? Could you tell us about being a designer in New Orleans? Yeah, I think, I think it is. There's definitely a heavy use of antiques here. I think New Orleans is a very elegant city, but there's also a lot of grittiness to it. And they, you see a lot of that in design here. Mm-hmm. There, you know, other designers that I admire who work in New Orleans, everyone seems to have, you know, that approach that it's, it's elegant, it's polished, but we also understand, you know, you're going to get glitter everywhere during Mardi Gras. Somebody, you're going to be having a party and somebody's going to spill wine somewhere. So we're not going to make it to, you know, untouchable. It has to be approachable. Um, so I think designing here, we take into account a lot of things that you might not in other cities. You know, New Orleans obviously is a big party town. People entertain a lot. People have people, you know, friends coming to visit all the time. You want things to be beautiful, but sturdy. And also to speak to a sense of place a bit with the city. You know, there's a lot of local art that we incorporate into our designs. There's a lot of local antiques that we incorporate. And I think that just helps the spaces we create here really not just reflect the client, but reflect the city as well. I love the idea of designing to be glitter proof. <laughs> I think that's on our website somewhere. Like you might have, you know, traces of glitter somewhere, but it's true. You know, people ask a lot. We One request we get sometimes from clients is I need costume storage because that is such a big thing in New Orleans. It. Everybody here has a costume bin or a costume closet and it's just, it grows and grows and grows. And, you know, mine over the last 15 years has just like exploded. And <laughs> we get a lot of requests for that. I need yeah. a costume, I need costume storage, I need a costume closet. Um, you know, there's, so that's very unique to hear. And, um, you know, also to just 
Mardi Gras is such a big deal here. And there's all these different things you get during Mardi Gras that people really, you know, value and prize and they want to show them off. So, you know, we've built bookshelves around certain things that people (gasps) have gotten during Mardi Gras. What was it? Framed. Well, there's, so there's a, you know, the groups that ride and the parades are called crew. They're called Mm -hmm. crews. Yeah. So there's an all female crew um, called the crew of muses. And they ride on the Thursday night before Mardi Gras Day, which is Fat Tuesday. So they throw their signature throw. They throw beads and, you know, Uh little trinkets and blinky things. But their signature throw is a high-heeled shoe that's been glittered, basically dipped in glitter and decorated. And some (gasps) of these are so elaborate. And these women spend, uh, you know, months, months, months making these. And Uh they're all wrapped in cellophane. So if you can catch one of those, that is a big deal. And so people like to display them. And so we've put them, you know, styled them on bookshelves. We've built like shadow boxes around them. So there's things about, you know, designing in New Orleans you have to consider that I don't think you really have to other places. Um, That's so fun. So it's fun, though. It's fun to go into people's homes and see their collection of things and think about how we can incorporate it into a design that, is a bit more elevated and sophisticated, but still a nod to kind of that spirit of New Orleans. Well, you, again, it's like you have a whole nother season in the whole year. Like Mardi Gras yeah, season yeah. is a whole, you know, period of time that you guys decorate and celebrate. So it is really fun for someone who's not from there to, you know, to hear about it and to think that mm-hmm. there are special things that you you know, you want to show off, you know, is pretty awesome. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a yeah. cup or something. <laughs> like, I know uh, that like... well, they're, the cups are also a big thing, but those usually get, you know, yeah. thrown away okay. behind <laughs> a cabinet. Um, but even Jazz Fest, I mean, Jazz Fest is a huge time mm-hmm. of year here, and they release a special poster every year that they commission an, a local artist to create, and people collect them, frame them in their home. Mm-hmm. So we go to a lot of homes that have jazz fest posters that we will get reframed or matted and dress up a bit oh that's Um, cool yeah yeah and they're always really interesting and colorful and cool so Mm -hmm. but everything is so colorful and i feel like even the art scene in in new orleans is um is more colorful so to to you know design a home around these more colorful do you find you use a lot of color for years even when we all went gray were you, were you going colorful? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was. I love, I mean, I love using color and pattern. And I think, again, that goes back to, even as a kid, I loved color and I would put together these outfits. And looking back now, I mean, they're so wacky, but like, I just, I would put like plaid pants with like a quilted vest and like a bright purple shirt. And I just loved kind of mixing and matching colors and patterns and then you know I painted my walls in high school I painted them like tangerine orange and I was obsessed with it and I thought it was the coolest thing and um you know thank you to my mom for letting me letting me do that right let me do (laughs) what I wanted in there um is that your worst nightmare right now (laughs) letting your daughters like go ahead and do whatever they want in their rooms well we did move into the house that we're in now last August and my twins are four and a half now and you know they're three and a half when we moved in and I asked them what color 
do you want to paint your room? And one of them said red. It's <laughs> <laughs> not going to happen. <laughs> and, one said pur- and one said dark purple. So I mm. said, what about pink? <laughs> it's a compromise. <laughs> so it's, it's pink. And so uh-huh. I haven't given them like carte blanche just yet. But they do like, even I see it even with my kids, you know, just including them in the process makes them take a lot of pride in their space and their room is a lot of pinks and greens but I helped you know they helped me pick out this lampshade that I put on you know this big pink gourd lamp and they helped pick out their bed sheets and you know I gave them two options to choose from but still they feel they felt involved in the process and um it's you know very colorful and lots of patterns so I think I've always been drawn to bright colors not necessarily bright colors just color in general I think it makes a home feel more alive and just gives it so much personality not saying that you know a totally neutral home doesn't have personality but for me when I walk into a home that has a lot of color and pattern it feels so inviting and like it feels so welcoming Oh, yeah. Do you think your art and architecture background has really influenced uh, your design? And in what ways have you seen it? I think it has. I think from a technical standpoint, the, you know, color theory principles I studied, composition, Mm -hmm. um, you know, importance of balance, I think is huge for me um, in my design work. And then also to context. I think one thing that I love to give clients when we present is the context and the line of thinking behind a space that we've designed. And I'm not sure if other designers do that, but we really like to talk through all of our selections, why we chose a piece, why it's special to that room, why it's important for that room. And I think context is such a huge part of art history. There's so much more that you learn beyond just looking at a painting and understanding, you know, the composition. You're also learning about what was going on in history at that time, politics. Um, And so you're learning so much more beyond just the painting. And I think that's carried over a lot into my business. So that certainly has helped. And then I think too, just from like a aesthetic standpoint, I was always drawn to very colorful, expressive pieces. I started out, um, excuse me, in undergrad thinking I wanted to focus on um, abstract expressionism because I just loved the colors and the movement and the scale of the pieces. They're all so big. And we had the Modern Art Museum in Fort Worth and they had some really incredible pieces there. And that kind of morphed into more modern contemporary art. And then I took a Latin American contemporary art class in undergrad and I just loved it so much. I grew up in Texas and Colorado. Um, I am white, so it's a bit of an odd choice to focus on contemporary Latin American art, I think as a white woman. And, um, but I was so drawn to just the, iconography that they use. It was very reminiscent of the places where I grew up. It felt very familiar. And then what I focused on in grad school was um, a really specific niche of contemporary Latin American art 
which was border art. So, and not just border art, but um, artists who worked on the United States-Mexico border and produced pieces that reflected this kind of dual identity and like that push-pull of not really being from one place or another. So I think about that now too. I'm like saying all this and I'm thinking like, okay, I do a lot of that in, you know, my career now. It's like, it's a lot of push and pull and it's a lot of, you know, reconciling, you know, maybe this is getting a little too philosophical, (laughs) but it's a lot of reconciling, Mm -hmm. you know, a husband and wife's or, you know, two partners, you know, identities and tastes and trying to make it feel cohesive. Um, So anyway, that might've been a long, very winding way to answer that question. But, but yeah, I think, you know, I look back now a lot and I have a lot of appreciation for graduate school. I have a lot of appreciation for my, my undergrad degree. And, you know, I used to kind of, people would ask me a lot, you know, what are you going to do with this degree? What use does it have? And now I look back and I'm like, it really is so helpful. And I learned so much more again, beyond just, you know, the history of paintings I learned. Right. Um, I mean, there's a depth, like you said, that you can't account for, for um, the things you've learned and the realizations you've put together. And I'm sure again, from a artist lens too, it's gotta be, you know, a great way to look at everyone's home and uh, really see what's mm. important to them too. And just speaking of art and antiques, I'd love to roll into um just how you are using antiques. Uh, so much of your work has, you know, something integrated into it that's old and crusty and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Where do you shop? How do we do it? Can we be like you? What's your process? <laughs> Let us know. So I so there is, there's a balance I try and strike and it's kind of like a 70-30 rule. It's like 70% of the okay. room... If you're gonna if you're gonna mix styles, mm-hmm. I would say seventy percent of the room should be in one style, and then pepper in you know thirty percent with another. So if you're gonna go a little bit more contemporary, and you want to pepper in some antiques, maybe you know choose two pieces, two antique pieces, two or three. Um, so I try and strike a balance. Um, I really like working with smaller vendors, antique dealers who I find through Instagram. Um, there's of course incredible antique stores in New Orleans, but the price point is most often too high, um, for our clients. And there's a few here that have a really reasonable price point. Um, but for the most part, I buy antiques through a couple dealers on Instagram um, one is Lily's Vintage Finds. She's based in Houston. Um, she does finds incredible antique and vintage pieces. She just went to France and loaded up a shipping container. And she's really great for sideboards, commodes, accent chairs, really beautiful statement mirrors. And then she has a whole glassware arm of her business and she sells incredible vintage glassware. Um, there's a local a couple local vendors. One is called Estately. Um, and she finds really, really amazing vintage pieces. So, you know, more kind of mid-century modern, um, a lot of great upholstery. I've gotten some really amazing upholstered pieces from her that I then recover in a newer fabric. So I love working with her. 
Um, there's one called Time to Acquire, but time is spelled like the herb. So T-H-Y-M-E. She finds a lot of really great small accent, like brass pieces for bookshelves, great lamps, little game tables. That's kind of her kind of niche. And that's where I, what I source a lot from her. So I'm always kind of hunting on Instagram and seeing, you know, where things come from. Um, you know, if a designer tags somebody, I'll kind of pop over to their profile. And um, it's just, I like supporting these smaller businesses because I'm a small business owner now and have, have been in a previous life. And there's also a great store in Baton Rouge called Fireside Antiques. And they are unbelievable. They've been in business for 40 years. Um, and they have really, really incredible European antiques. And so they're a really great resource for a client that has a bit more flexibility in their budget. Um, and their stuff is just so stunning. So yeah, I think Instagram has been a wonderful, not just like community builder, but a business builder as well. That is so nice too. I love when you can find, mm -hmm. again, they link to somewhere else and you, and you can find something that feels really special. Um, do, you mm -hmm. have, do you have any advice for finding the perfect piece when you're antiquing? I would say have the perfect piece. Um, right. I would say have your measurements with you because there's nothing worse than buying an antique piece that is way too big or even a little too big or too small, which is more often the case because that has happened to everybody. And it makes me feel better when I see designers, you know, post on their Instagram. Oh, I thought this piece was going to be great, but it was actually miniature and I didn't read the specs and it arrived. And it was for a, a cat or a doll or something. Oh my gosh. So yes, that Shays having... one, <laughs> whoever yeah. bought that Shays, yeah. that was like for a and dog it was for a cat. <laughs> or a cat. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Yes. Of. But I think having your measurements, bringing a measuring tape, most places will have one, but, um, just knowing, remembering too, that if something has a little bit of an imperfection, most of the time it can be fixed. Um, you can always sand things down and restain them. You can repair a hinge. You can, you can swap out hardware. I think there's been pieces before that we've seen where we loved the piece itself, but the hardware wasn't that great. Um, so just remembering when you go in to shopping that very rarely is there this just beautiful unicorn piece waiting for you that checks all of your boxes when that happens it is truly the best thing. Yeah. Um, but just knowing you can make tweaks and you can kind of customize things. So my girlfriend just found a unicorn piece. No. Where mm -hmm. it's like a 1930s art deco cabinet and she was looking for a wardrobe that could fit her clothing and her oh, linens wow. and all you total unicorn piece but she couldn't get the smell out and didn't realize it oh, until it was, it was already done. in her home just how intense it was yeah oh that's what do really you do tough. in that what do you do in that in that instance that's tough especially with pieces that you can't like steam clean that aren't fabric or that you can't have recovered there are some products out there um, that help remove odor, like these gels that you can get and you open it up. It's like, it looks like a candle and you can put it inside of a closet or an armoire and it helps absorb the smell. Um, it, with wood, 
I would say, you know, wood conditioner, you know, you don't want to strip certain pieces, obviously. Um, but I would try one of those odor absorbing gels, but that's tough. I mean, I bought a, I bought a piece recently and it was actually a painting, but the frame was matted with linen and it came from a really heavy smoker's home and it had a very strong smell to it. So I'm getting it reframed, but you know, with a big wood piece, that's a lot harder to do. Yeah. yeah. But Ugh. unicorn pieces, it's like when you find them, sometimes it's like, well, I can kind of live with this a little bit, but <laughs> I mean, the smell, I don't know. I'm so, a smell yeah. is tough. I'm so sensitive oh. to smells. I don't know if I could live with that. I know. I'm going to have to check back in with her because it, it was pretty intense. Bummer. Total bummer. I know I am. Total now bummer. I'm like actually wondering what you can do. If you could yeah, seal it. I know. More. Now I'm like, now I need to go and figure yeah. that out. Yeah. But because you, you know, don't want to be stinky sweatered, right? Like you put your sweaters in there. No, you and don't. Then, yeah. And then you're like, oh, good. Now when I'm you the don't want your one. home. Yeah. No, and you don't want your home to have that smell either. No. Or you pull a bedspread out. You No, you need the freshness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Are there other things that, like, yeah, where where is the line on? finding something vintage versus finding a fine antique like you're gonna you're gonna have to compromise a little bit on some of those Mm -hmm. quality things do you have a line I do I mean I think it's pretty apparent that's why I that's why I like sourcing antiques from vendors that I trust and that I've built a relationship with over time because I know that if there's an imperfection, they're going to tell me, they're not going to send me a product that is really damaged and, or seeing it in person. I think it's pretty easy to see in person. Okay. This is just beyond repair or it's going to cost more to repair this than the actual piece itself cost. I would never purchase a piece that would require that much repair. Um, I think if there's a veneer on the wood, that's, damaged and cracking you know burlwood is so popular but that's a veneer and so if that's chipping or peeling or Mm -hmm. warped i probably wouldn't i wouldn't do it because you're not going to be able to replace that veneer and have it match the pieces that are still intact it's going to be expensive it's hard to find somebody to do that i think with you know glass pieces you know if the glass is cracked don't do it unless you can replace the glass Um, And then anything too that, you know, if it's rickety, if the drawers are sticking, if it feels like, okay, this is going to be a huge project after I buy it and you're not really up for taking on a big project, I would say skip it. I think if there's like a little wear and tear that can be, you know, touched up with some stain or paint, you know, if there's a little, like we bought a piece um, a couple years ago that had a tiny chip in the marble. It was a commode and we used it as a bedside table and it had a little chip in the marble, but it was kind of towards the back. Wasn't that noticeable to me and to the client that was fine because mm-hmm. the piece was perfect for that space. So I think it's just all kind of, it's your own personal judgment call. If you feel like it's going to be a huge you know, pain in the neck, then I probably would skip it. Or if it just looks damaged or if it's really stinky or, <laughs> um, you know, so I think too, you know, also remember you can negotiate with most dealers. Some people don't, I think in-person dealers, you can probably negotiate on the price a bit, especially if you see that there's a little bit of damage. 
Um, so, you know, I think be respectful during that process. You know, nobody loves being haggled with, but I think you can maybe ask for a little bit off. Okay. So what's the most exciting piece that you found recently? So it's actually from my own home and I love it. And it actually is a unicorn piece. And it's the second unicorn piece I've gotten from Lily, from Lily's Vintage Finds. So it is a 1960s Burlwood um, credenza. And one side is cabinets. The other side has drawers that are concealed behind cabinets. So it looks symmetrical from the front. And the burl is in perfect condition. I needed a piece for this sitting room that we have. And she previews a lot of her pieces, especially the very special pieces that she knows will get a big reaction. So this piece, I saw it and I measured, I said, this is perfect. And I set like six alarms and um, (laughs) ended up getting it. So you did win. Yes. (laughs) So I did win. I did win. But I also, the other unicorn piece I got from her is a couch. It's from the seventies and it's in this really beautiful purple, red, and kind of off-white cream floral pattern. And again, I set, I was out of town when, you know, she drops them at 7 p.m. on Thursday nights and I was out of town and I was like, had to be at a dinner at seven. And I was like, I am not missing this couch. I can be late to the dinner, but I cannot miss this couch. <laughs> so um, I think those those two pieces are my favorite, favorite recent vintage finds. Um, I do have my all-time best ever antique find was these chairs that my mom and I found when I was in college at an estate sale. And they're kind of narrower wingback chairs and they're in chartreuse velvet. And we got them for $15 each and they were Ah. in perfect condition. And still, I mean, I was 19 or 20 when we got these. So, you know, almost 20 years later, they are in perfect condition and they look incredible somehow in every room I've put them in over the years. So those I think are my all time favorite find ever. And those, green chairs. those are on your portfolio or yeah, yeah online. Oh, yeah. They've those, been in, those are amazing. They've been in every place I've lived ah. since I was ni- 19. That is really And I'm funny. like, I will never, if I have to grab some things out of my house, um, during a fire, I'll try and throw the chairs Chocolate. out the door if I can. Just throw a twin in each one. Yeah, just hold on tight, throw them out the door. Oh, that is so funny. I love the one that I can see you outside the restaurant, literally on your phone. Like, Oh, I was like, I am, and my hands were shaking. I was entering my credit card information as fast as I could. Um, I love it. So she texted me after I got this Burlwood um, credenza, she texted me and she just said, I don't know how you got, you snagged the two most coveted pieces I've ever put up. And I was like, I was not wasting one second. One I was second. pressing refresh. Cause it's like when you find, yes, again, you were a concert piece. ticket, like ready. You were, you get it. Yes. yes. I was ready. I was well, like, I, if I was going to get Taylor Swift tickets, I would have been very well prepared and trained. <laughs> And like pressing refresh and ready. Well, I think that's really good to hear, though, that even, you know, designers are like, you're on it, right? Like, again, you're scouring all the time, but 
you still had to like book it for the good stuff. So, I mean, I oh, think yeah. it's good to know that. And you can't just. Oh, yeah. I mean, you do find things, of course, you can walk, wander into a place and find something wonderful. But I do think, again, if you're yeah. searching for a certain measurement, like you being on it is is very important. <laughs> I mean, I had to be. And especially for a client, too. You know, we um, we source a lot of vintage antiques. Sorry, I've got to plug mm -hmm. my computer in. We source a lot of vintage and antiques for clients from Bristol's and Cherish, and um, obviously locally if we can. But sometimes we find the perfect thing online, and we tell them during our presentation, "This is one of a kind." So if we love this, we got to get on it. They're not going to hold it for us. We got to expedite this particular piece. So, um, and that's kind of thrilling and fun, and it's you know, it's part of the excitement I think of the design process too. <laughs> That has to be fun, especially like yeah for you. You're like, listen, if we don't get this today, I'd be like, oh god, it's gone, <laughs> it's, it's gone. But of course, like, yeah, it's gone. Yeah, but of course, those sites mm -hmm. they give so many great, you know, here's some similar suggestions. Mm -hmm. um, but we, when we are working with antiques with clients, we do try and communicate to them, you know, we can either get this one right now, or we might have to find something similar if we don't act fast. So, yeah. Okay, I want to loop back to your vintage sofa because okay. that's because that's a little bit of a line for me. So I I always am concerned about getting a vintage sofa. I love the lines mm -hmm. of a vintage sofa, but mm -hmm. how do you know, especially if you're seeing it online and not knowing what condition the seat is in or the cushions are in, what are you thinking about when you're getting a vintage sofa? And what do you need to do to kind of just bring it up to a little bit of newness? So I think if you, and this one in particular, there is some damage on the underside of one of the cushions. So there is one cushion that can never be flipped and rotated. Um, and she was very upfront about that. I think if you're buying a vintage piece and it arrives and it's a little deflated, finding a good upholsterer to rebuild the cushions, rebuild the pillows, you know, over time, those things get smushed down. Um, they may need to redo the webbing and the coils within kind of like the guts of the sofa itself. But I think finding a really good upholsterer and just telling them, I love the fabric on here. I want to keep it, but we need to fluff it back up a bit and they'll be able to do that. Um, and, you know, they can obviously recover it fully if you want to, but that's something I really love to do as well is find vintage sofas and recover them in a really fun kind of contemporary fabric. Um, but finding a good upholsterer, communicating exactly what you want done and they'll know just by looking at the piece. Okay. This needs new batting or new webbing and working with them to rebuild it. Okay. That's great. Yeah. I was, I was with you, Liz. Upholstery is that one I never know what to do. And cause again, a mm -hmm. chest kind of like you said, I feel like you kind of know and, um, different wood pieces, but the upholstered part does seem so hard. So it was good to know. It can be, it can be, especially if something arrives and maybe it's dingier in person than it looked online. That does happen. Um, you know, if you're buying something online from somebody asking a lot of questions, is, you know, asking for additional photos, um, you know, because sometimes things show up and it's not what it looked like online and, you know, it's got to go back or it needs to be cleaned. Um, so, yeah, upholstery can be pretty tricky. There's a lot that can be 
you know, concealed a bit more, I think with upholstery behind pillows and um, all of that. That's true. That's a good one. Well, these, I feel like I have a whole like litany of tips and tricks on this. <laughs> we've got our 70-30 rule. We've got check Instagram, <laughs> yes. measurements with you, you know, know your limits. This is awesome. And it's okay to negotiate and ask for more de- more detailed shots. That's really great. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, yeah, because some of these vendors, they post a ton of information and photographs and some don't. And so, you know, you don't want to go in totally blind, especially if it's a really big purchase. And if you're purchasing online or if it needs to be shipped, you're also then paying a lot in shipping. You know, and freight on these bigger pieces is not cheap. And so you don't want to go through all of that. Also asking what their return policy is if it's not super clear on the site. Um, Because inevitably things do have to go back. But just asking. And most most dealers are totally willing to do that. I really haven't found anybody um, that's refused. So I think they they want you to be happy with the piece. so I think most people would be fine with sending more info. Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm about ready to go antique shopping. I'll see y'all later. <laughs> Before you Before do. you're going to be here so oh. soon. <gasps> that's true. Oh, my goodness. I can send you some good. I don't know how much time you have, but I I can send you to my favorite spot. Ooh, ooh. Oh, like my gosh. I would love that. Yeah. A little for bit for our listeners, I'm I'm leaving for New Orleans tomorrow night just for a quick day. It's just going to be a quick day, but we don't have plans. So that would be fun. So well, antique shopping, there you go. Here. So antique shopping is yeah. now on the list. That's awesome. My favorite place for antiques. And I, well, I don't know if I want to give that away, but there's a great <laughs> place called Dop. I'll say it, whatever. He's great. I work with him all the time called Dop Antiques. And he is um, European antiques. He gets containers uh. from Europe pretty often. And then... My favorite place, though, for vintage is a place called Merchant House. That's where you should go, Liz, is Merchant House just reopened their new, beautiful space. They were in a temporary space for a couple years while they remodeled this building. And they have some just really incredible pieces, lots of mix of different vendors, um, but furniture, artwork, clothing, jewelry, lamps, and it's all very... It's all very curated and very mindful. So I love shopping there. Love shopping with them. That sounds perfect. Thanks for the yeah. tips. That's awesome. You're welcome. And it's a yeah. little closer. It's a little closer to where you said you're staying. So ah. y'all should check it out if you have time. I definitely will. Oh, exciting. <laughs> I love I love when we have a podcast and I keep a pen handy and take a bazillion <laughs> notes as well. <laughs> no, that's perfect. Well, ha- are you ready for a decorating dilemma? Hattie, will you please help us? Okay. <laughs> All right. This week we have from Kara, and she writes in to say, Hello, I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I recently was able to move all of my kids' toys out of my front living room and reclaim the space. So kudos, yay. (laughs) I recently got these chairs, which were smaller than I expected. My fault for not paying attention to the height. And I was hoping to add more interest to this room. I was thinking of adding curtains, but wasn't sure how it would work with the trim over the windows. I also thought maybe I should add an area rug. 
I'd like to replace the side table and bookshelf as well, but I'm wondering about scale. Thank you so much, Kara. And she attached a perfect little picture of some very petite wing chair, armchairs, mm -hmm. and a cantilever bookshelf she has and what looks like a few kids toys but I think she's done a great job so I'm assuming this was <laughs> um yeah yeah and so yeah please tell her all she can do to make this little room more homey for her okay well I want to address the chairs first I don't think there's anything wrong with the scale of these chairs I mentioned earlier these kind of narrow wingbacks that I have. And I think they work with the scale of this room. I don't think kind of looking at this photo, it's a particularly massive room. So I think the smaller scale actually works well in here. Um, if she wanted to add more interest with the chairs, she could al always recover them in a patterned fabric. Um, she has a child. So I would suggest something, um, maybe performance that's going to hold up really well. Um, but I like the chairs and I think for the side table, there's not a ton of wiggle room between those chairs, but if she wanted to replace it just to have more breathing room for the lamp and the framed photo, um, I would maybe choose something rectangular. I like that the one she has has two layers. Um, you can always kind of style up that second layer with coffee table books to add a little bit more visual interest, but maybe something rectangular that runs horizontally under that window between the chairs. And then um, for the window treatments, curtains, we have this um, issue in my house where we have this you know, crown molding um, running along uh, the top of the wall. I would hang the curtains right beneath the, the crown molding. Don't drill into the molding. That's gonna you know, ruin it, make it harder. You know, you'll have to patch it if you ever take those out. But right underneath the molding, is where the curtain rod should sit. And because those two windows do almost kind of butt up against each other, I would suggest a French return that only goes out like, well, I don't know how close that one is to the wall, but a couple inches on each side of the window. Typically you wanna do four to six inches extended out on either side. You could probably go in a bit here, but I like how clean a French return is. It feels, to me, it's my most preferred curtain hardware. It just feels a lot more finished. Um, and then make sure the curtains barely touch the ground. So prefab curtains, sometimes that's a little harder to do. And if you're doing made to order or fully custom curtains, you can get more exact measurements. Um, but you wanna make sure the curtains are just barely, barely touching the ground. If they are a natural, fiber, you know, cotton or linen, they will um, stretch a bit. So you want to make sure you accommodate for that. Um, but yeah, that'll help the room feel, you know, the higher you hang the curtains, the higher the room feels. Um, and I would do a pattern on the curtains. I think find something if you do recover the chairs that complements um, that pattern. If you leave the chairs, this solid blue, um, Ballard has some really great um, prefab panel curtain options. Um, and yeah, I think they would look really, really great with some panels in this room. And then for the bookshelf, that's a pretty good stretch of wall. My suggestion for that space would be similar to the curtains, go as high as you possibly can. 
because from a scale perspective, if you've got these, you know, beautiful, you know, tall curtains that's drawing your eye up, if then you have a shorter bookshelf that's going to bring your eye right back down. So you want the eye to keep going up. You can buy something, you know, you can buy a bookcase. Again, Ballard, I looked up some of the options that y'all have. I really like the Delano and the Avis. And the Avis has this really beautiful glass front, like arched shape. Um, I think if you're wanting to conceal something, you know, if you are still using it for kids storage, you can always put fabric behind the glass. So you have that kind of glass look and it's not super heavy, but you add some interest and some color and some texture there with the fabric behind the glass. Um, if you want to kind of mix it up a bit too, you could always look into prefab from, you know, a place like Ikea and you can paint, you can add beadboard behind the shelving, which is a really nice way to add texture. You can even wallpaper behind the shelving. If you don't want to commit to a room full of wallpaper, I like doing wallpaper on the back of a bookshelf. And then you can always go fully custom on a built-in and that's going to give you the most control over how much storage you have. What kind of storage too? What kind of storage, adjustable shelving. You can add molding at the top that matches your crown molding, which makes it feel very much like it was built, you know, built with the house. So that's another option. But I would take up almost that entire stretch of wall with a bookshelf. Um, And if that means, you know, stacking two right next to each other, I just think from a scale perspective, that'll really help fill that space because it is a pretty big visual expanse. And I think rug was the, the last thing to address. I would pull in a patterned rug. I would make sure that it's big enough. This one looks like it fills the room almost completely, but in the fastest way to make the room feel smaller is the rug that's too small. So if you're ever worried that the rug is too big, it's probably not. I mean, I don't know if you want it touching the baseboards completely, but a general rule of thumb is that at least the front two legs of all of your seating should be on the rug if the rug is filling meant to fill the entire room. So I like with kids, I like a polyester rug, a poly blend. There's so many beautiful ones out there now. They're super durable, easy to clean. They're not scratchy. You know, when your kid's down on the floor playing, they're really nice underfoot. So I would make sure that the rug is filling the majority of the room. It doesn't need to fill the room completely, but the majority of it and do a subtle pattern. You know, there's so many great reproductions of antiques, antique rugs now. And then Etsy also has a ton of great vintage Turkish rugs that I like to pull a lot for projects. So that would be, Oh, that's my, yeah. And I think just adding some more height and some more um, pattern and color to the room would definitely amp up kind of that interest that she's going for. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's a, she obviously has, you know, a beautiful sofa and these, you know, great little chairs. And like you said, you can totally play up by reupholstering if, if that's in the cards or maybe not even now and down the road. Yeah. Um, the drapery. You can always add some pillows. Yeah. The drapery part I think is a must. Like, I think you will be so happy, Kara, when you get it up. Cause you'll be like, the room feels totally different with drapery. And mm-hmm. you only have molding at the top and the bottom of your window frame. So like the drape, you will not miss any of it. You'll be able to see that little bit mm-hmm. of molding with the drapery and, and mm-hmm. 
Uh, I was just going to add because I have a tight little corner like this with a window and Ballard does sell uh, the hardware, the connector and the corner. Mm -hmm. So you can fit the 90 degree angle with the hardware, drapery hardware. And I love it. It works great for my space. So that's why I totally recommend because it was, it was great to put up. So yeah, I think drapes completely. I like, I tell clients drapery is like jewelry for a room it's like the room can feel sort of done Mm -hmm. but it feels very complete once you put drapery in there and it just it makes all the difference in the world so if you're doing a prefab drapery panel or a you know made to order semi-custom or fully Mm -hmm. custom no matter what you choose I do think it really does amplify a room it really helps it feel um complete Oh, yeah. And she has no pattern in there right now. So she can go ham. You can do whatever you want. Oh, yeah. It'll be yeah. great. <laughs> go wild. <laughs> yeah. It could be her jumping <laughs> off point, but maybe it's the rug too. So she could. you could start there or you could start with fabric for the chairs mm-hmm. or a pillow you love. This will be such a fun little mm-hmm. project now that you have this space. So definitely celebrate the toys being gone. And yes, concealed storage all the way. Mm-hmm. But I do, I know she has a, some pretty frames and books she probably wants to display. So finding a mix, that was perfect. Find mm-hmm. a cabinet where you can display some and hide some is the best for sure. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, I want to see it when it's done. <laughs> I know. Kara, please send us a photo so we can show Hattie. That'd be great. <laughs> well, Hattie, thank you so much for spending your afternoon with us. And um, can you tell everyone where they can find you and follow you and see your beautiful work? You can find me on Instagram Patty Sparks and online at hattiesparks.com. We make it pretty simple to find us. Um, it's all Hattie Sparks um, on all social platforms. So thank you all so much for having me. This was so much fun and just such a delight to talk to both of you and tell my story. This was great. No, loved thank you it. so much. This was good. And that's our show. You can find all of the show notes on our blog, howtodecorate.com slash podcast. To send in a decorating dilemma, email your questions to podcast at ballarddesigns.net so we can help you with your space. And of course, be sure to follow us on social media at Ballard Designs. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Until next time, happy Happy decorating. decorating.